to the second episode of My Brother Deeper, a podcast about two brothers. One lives in England, one lives in Los Angeles, one's a pastor, one's a writer. I'm Josh Mayhall. And I'm Jason Mayhall. So I'm putting together last week's first episode which is up on Podbean now if you want to check that out it's called Memory My Brother's Deeper this theme kept popping up having to do with separation and dealing with what we're dealing with today with the pandemic where we're all self-isolating and quarantining separating from each other it's been hard because we're social creatures um, I'm alone not self-isolating alone you're doing it with uh, a wife and four kids two very different self-isolations and separations uh, how are you guys doing over there good bad ugly indifferent How's it going? I think so far it's not been horrible. You know, I'm, I'm always conscious of the fact that there are a lot of people in worse off positions than we are. And I'm thankful that we have each other to have interaction. But on the same kind of side of things, that presents its own challenges, you know, of having four kids at various different ages their need for social interaction, their need for peer interaction and not being able to have that. So do you think that's been a challenging time for our teenagers particularly? I think my wife and I are, I think I'm doing better because I'm still going to work actually. So like I've been declared here in the UK as quote unquote an essential worker. So as a, as a pastor slash minister, whose church also has a food bank, that's one of the allowances that the government's given us. So I'm still going into work every single day, which from a mental health standpoint, I think is really healthy and good for me. My wife obviously is not, doesn't have that, uh, that outlet. So I think depending on the day, it can be good. Depending on the day, it can be really struggle, much of a struggle. So, yeah, I mean that's kind of where I'm at. So from you, for you though, from a isolation standpoint, I mean, would you consider yourself an introvert or extrovert? Because that probably impacts kind of how you're dealing with this, right? Like, because I've seen a lot of stuff where introverts are like, "Yeah, this is great. You don't have to be around anybody." I'm definitely an introvert, but it has been tough. I've seen that too about people. Early on, I saw that of people who are proclaiming themselves as introverts like oh this is great for me nothing's changed you know you see the occasional meme of someone who's like it's no big deal you know but i think that's disingenuous because you do need some sort of human interaction a physical sort of chemistry it's the mysteries of it you know um so yeah it's been hard been really hard like two months it's been two months this is the ninth week as well for us and it's been it's been pretty pretty tough i think what's what's the worst part of it is just the uncertainty of what is actually going on and when things are going to end and do you really have to think of this as like this is how it's going to be for a long time i think that is the hardest part because you know People talk about getting back to normal, and I don't know if that is something that we'll get back to, you know, as however we've defined that, because I do wonder, is this a new normal from the standpoint of how we've got to continually think through all the different aspects of being six feet apart and, you know, maybe being in lines in the in the grocery shops and just all that sort of stuff. Like, I don't I, I don't think get the sense that it's going to go back to quote unquote normal anytime soon, honestly, you know, particularly 
as we head through the summer and get back into, you know, the normal flu and cold season, I just feel like this is probably going to come back. And that's what they're talking about here is, you know, being careful about that second spike. I saw some infograph that showed the 1918 Spanish flu epidemic and where we're at in that kind of same timeline is very, very early. And then that second spike was a huge, huge spike where the majority of people that died in that pandemic died. So, I, yeah, I, I am very, very cautious about this idea of things going back to where where they were. I saw the same thing about the Spanish flu, the same graph. And uh, you would think we'd learn something from it. <laughs> it's crazy. You know what I mean? It just seems yeah. like a circle that we're doing. Like life is, you hear that, you've heard that metaphor before of everything's just a circle but like we have that information about that that flu and it's just like because they did the same thing you read these stories about particularly the city of san francisco is what i've seen is you know they went into quarantine when it happened and then they relaxed it and that's when that second spike hit later on like months later and it's just like well you know, we can avoid that. It's just hard, you know, because nobody wants to be told what to do. I think that's a big part of it. You know? Yeah, I think that's what I'm trying to wrap my mind around, Josh, is like, is it – what's at the core of this, right? Like, is is it that people are rebellious and don't want to be told what to do, like you're saying? Is it the isolation thing and being separated and people are, are just wanting that – connectivity with other people or and maybe it's you know a combination probably of everything i I think another big thing is just this is going to sound really negative but kind of greed of like we got to get business back open and we've got to you know get get um jobs back flowing which i can like i wanted i need to be we have to be sensitive to that for sure but like i saw someone the other day kind of make fun of the caution part of this, and it was like, you know, someone with a face mask on, and there was the words, it's not worth dying to maintain our normal way of life, which I think is what people are saying. Let's just stay in, and yeah, it's going to be hard, but let's kind of see it through the spike. But then the second half of the picture was like a man in an American military uniform, like as if to say, well, they're willing to die to maintain a normal way of life. And I was like, you know what? I don't think that's a really appropriate way to put two images together and compare them, you know, like that. I don't think we're talking about the same thing. So anyway, I, I don't know. I just get frustrated with that perspective. But I also know that if I were someone who is not working right now, that I would probably feel a little bit different as well. So I think it's a very complicated thing. I think it's a very, very complex issue, and it's hard to say yay or nay, black or white, one way or the other. Like it's, it's just very, very layered in in how it creates issues. So that was a a British take on what's going no, on. What you're talking about? No, I saw it like a um, Facebook thing from a person in the states. Okay. Right. No, yeah, the I think. I don't know if we want to go too deep into this, but for me, the the actual apparatus of capitalism has been has it's been it's taken a hit <laughs> during this because it has shown in our fir- in the first stimulus thing that the U.S. passed, all this money went to corporations. Instead of it going – the reason why we're in this right now, and it's really simple, we don't have the testing. Yeah. So, And the reason why we don't have the testing is um, a bunch of factors, one of them being getting rid of certain things that were set up already right. without going into deep to it. But, but the other one was in that stimulus. From package. a government standpoint you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, they, they, they could have taken that money and put it in the testing, and they didn't do it. And the reason why they didn't do it is because of – corporations and they run things you know and you're seeing that now that nobody really cares about labor about people who make you know less than 
$100,000 a year. And, that, and that's what this is about. So I think like the if you want to look at it as a glass half full guy, you would say, well, that's a good thing that's come out of it is like maybe it's opened our eyes towards certain things. Mm-hmm. You know, and, so and, did you get a stimulus check? You know what? I finally got it. I, uh, but you know, think about it. it's 1200 bucks. No, I know. You know what I mean? I've, that's two. That's so we've been in this for two months. That's 600 bucks going on three. That's 400 bucks a month. Who can live on that? Yeah, nobody. So, no, I, I mean, I, I feel it's strange. I know to kind of put those numbers together. And I, I feel strange, although thankful. Like, I think we were one of the. Just based on what I saw, I think we were one of the first people to get the stimulus check. Like we we got one, and so because we had filed taxes and done a direct deposit in 2018, it went straight into our U.S. bank account. Nice. Which was, you know, that's that's helpful for sure. So, but I will. We're gonna jump around a bit, like Quint. Sorry, Quint Tarantino here. So. I'm going to make movie references. I did last time. I made a searcher's reference. So that's just going to be a part of it. Anyway, we were – in the last episode, we talked about sort of growing up in Louisiana. And one thing I wanted to go back to was when you know, I was like three, you were five, our mom and dad got divorced. Do you remember at any certain age where it started to hit you like, you know, this is this is not normal or it is normal or it feels this way? I can't think of a particular age where I started thinking that way, but I know I definitely started thinking in terms of the divorce affecting my ability to emotionally disconnect from people. So for for example, I don't think I have a huge problem by any stretch of connecting emotionally or connecting mentally to people. But I do think that I probably disconnect way quicker than most people. And I think the divorce to some degree had something to do with that, in part because of all the other things that follow the divorce of, you know, getting a stepfather moving, changing schools, like to me, all of that starts to kind of come together. And I think it definitely has affected like when we moved, when we, we, you know, because we, you and I moved several times, you'd make friends and then you'd have to leave. And I can only guess at the way that I dealt with that without, you know, breaking down and crying and um, just being totally shattered was that I somehow like that began to condition me to be able to say goodbye really quickly. And so I think from my perspective, being able to separate from people, it almost became a skill, quite frankly. Yeah, and, I, feel, I feel like I did know, the same thing, you know. Um, I don't know if at the time, that being that young, that I did it. But I think more it happened more so with mom's second marriage and how that ended that yeah. affected me deeper. But it was probably an accumulation of that. That's that's really strange that you that we both. I guess that's natural, right? That's probably what kids do when that that happens. You sort of compartmentalize emotions and cut things off. And it's crazy that we both felt that and we never really talked about it. We didn't have the capacity as kids to do that. Yeah, I don't think we I don't think we did at all. I think I knew it was happening though because you know. There were there were times where we changed schools pretty quickly, you know, within a school year. And I can remember, you know, when we moved to Maine, this big transition from Louisiana to Maine, the first school that we went to, like I made friends really quickly and I made some good friends really quickly from my perspective. And then, you know, within a semester, we moved again and I really never talked to those friends again. And I look back on that and I'm like, man, that's really weird. But the flip side of it is that I'm also, again, that as I mentioned, I feel like I can reconnect with people quickly. 
but that's created an expectation from me of why can't other people reconnect? Like I'm the type of person where it's like if I not talk to someone for five years, my very next conversation with them is like, let's pick up where we left off. And I don't, my experience is that that's not most people. So I don't know if there's some sort of weird kind of, you know, effect that because I'm we're able to disconnect quickly if that compensates itself on the other end. Yeah, I wonder if people think that you know that ability to disconnect is a weird thing. They're probably like, man, that guy's a psycho. You ever think that people <laughs> think that about you? You know? I, I mean, I do at times, but here's the thing: is that I, I also feel like I've experienced that enough on that end too, to where you know, like, because I'm the type of person where like I can disconnect. If I do think of someone, say it's been a couple months, I've not talked to someone. And I do think of someone and or maybe a couple years is a better example. And then I reach out to that person, which obviously is a lot easier now in, in 21st century than it was growing up. And I reach out to them and I'll say, you know, hey, man, what's going on? Haven't heard from you in a while. You know, would love to catch up. Da, 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 da. I felt like it's it's very quiet. Now, I don't know if that's because they felt I disconnected too soon or if that also speaks to some sort of normalcy of like life does go on you know like there's this song that came out i don't know seven eight years ago by this this guy named Gautier, and it and the name of the song was someone that i used to know i think it was this, you remember that song it was like yeah. a kind of weird video yeah yeah and i've always been struck by that song because he's talking about like a romantic relationship but i've always thought isn't that true though there's so many people in my life that I would use that phrase for. It's not that I'm mad at them. It's not that we had a horrible, you know, separation or, or ending to the relationship, but literally it's someone that I used to know and I just don't know them anymore. And while I feel like I can disconnect quickly, I think over time other people do that as well eventually, but maybe it's just kind of supercharged with me and you. I don't know. Along those lines of like coming in contact in and out, sparsely with people i find it hard not to take things personally sometimes when it comes to like friendships and like falling in and out of of contact with people because i view things through this weird lens of like i'm always reaching out to people they never reach out to me i don't know if that's true or not so i don't know if it's just your perspective on things you know because sometimes when you you get a little hindsight it, it looks different you know but talking about um, being able to connect to people, that's part of your job, right? Like it that's is. A big, that's a huge because a lot of your job is okay. There is the the aspect. Okay, when you say someone's a pastor, you think, oh, he gets up in front of people and he preaches the good word. And behind that, like when you leave that stage, you in a sense get mobbed by people with questions. That's a big part of your life, man. Like being able yeah. to sort of like connect to people on, on just like a face-to-face level. How has that been affected? Um, you know, I feel like it's something that I've learned over time. I don't think it comes a hundred percent natural. So like, I think, you know, again, as human beings, we're obviously very complex. So on one hand, while I think that I'm, I can connect to people pretty quickly, I'm, I'm good at trying to find common ground you know, my wife always jokes with me that like I can I can find something to talk about with almost anyone because I've got a varied enough amount of interests where I'm not an expert in anything, but I know a little bit about a lot of things that I can find something and kind of zero in on that. And then I can develop a conversation 45 minutes later, like we're still talking. And I think I'm relatively good at asking questions of people so I can get them talking. So a lot of that has been learned over time. But, you know, like you, I'm an introvert, so that stuff also drains me. Like you, know, I, you, you said that to me last time when I, I saw you because I was asking you about getting up and talking to people, which to me I, I would have a hard time doing. Um, but you told me you're an introvert. And I didn't I never thought of you that way. That was interesting because you yeah. like in a sense, I thought you were trying to tell me that the word of God is moving through you and that allows you to get up. And is that how you view it? I think that's part of it. I mean, I, I think, you know, again, over time, um, going to college was big for me from a social standpoint of being able to meet a lot of different people and learn how to 
relate to a lot of different people. So I definitely think I've learned over time how to be social and how to use relationships and such as a way to further, you know, um, connection. But I do think like from a spiritual perspective, I do think that there's there's something, you know, supernatural kind of going on. I know that might sound strange, but but I do believe, you know, in in my belief system and, and way of faith is that God is still active in this world and he has a spirit that is accessible to people. And I think that that spirit does whatever word you want to use, anoint, endow, allow um, certain things to happen. And so I do feel like that some of it is what I would call like spirit enabled. Um, so I think it's a combination of that plus just learning, you know, now having having been in a role like this for, you know, 20 something years, um, you just kind of pick up and you learn things. And I think at the heart of what I do, going back to what you said before, at the heart of what I do, it's about relationships. And um, and so I've got to make sure that I continually am focusing on that because it'd be easy for me to focus on getting up and talking. Um, and that, I think, is, you know, maybe 25 percent of my job where the other 75 percent has more to do with interaction with people and um, trying to encourage and inspire and, um, t- you know, get to know people. Yes. So with this, with the people being isolated and all that, are you getting a lot of, of people asking you about things like that, what this has to do? Because I, I was thinking about the Bible and some of the stories in there about past yeah. plagues. And I guess you could yeah. call them pandemics. Like what, what what comes to mind first for you as far as like a, something in the Bible that could be relatable to what we're going through now? Well, you know, I want to be careful because I don't I don't want to directly ascribe this to God from the standpoint where God is using this to judge people. Um, I, I think in my frame of thinking, I, I allow that to be a possibility. But most of the examples in the Bible are very direct and overt where God is saying, because my people have not obeyed me, because my people have not followed what I've asked them to do, plagues and such are judgments. So like when you look at um, what happened in Egypt, you know, you talk about movies, the Prince of Egypt um, is a great example of that. Like here, here's Egypt and they are inundated with, you know, plagues of locusts and pestilence and, you know, blood in the River Nile and all this sort of stuff to where eventually even the firstborns in the land die. You know, that's where the whole Passover thing comes from. And and I think there were there were people without question who were struggling the way we're struggling now. I think there were people who were wondering, when is this going to be over? Why is it happening um, and is there something that I did that maybe contributed to it? Because I do think that that's something that I'm I'm also hearing right now is people are asking those three questions. And and so, yeah, I think to some degree, I mean, would you say the same thing? Like would you, when you think about how you're trying to process this, you know, like it's one thing to look back in history because I do think that there's there's something that we can learn from that. And I want to come back to that because from my perspective again like from a biblical standpoint i think what it what it does with people of faith is that it at least allows us or encourages us to ask questions of we may not have the answers but is there's something that we're trying to be taught in this situation I have, so for yeah, you like how do you how do you process that one thought that comes over and over to me of like when things like this happen like a hurricane or a tornado or an earthquake or a fire and then now this virus, I think in terms of, oh, it's just the earth, yeah. Mother earth just Mother Earth trying to correct things. Because when you look at like pollution now, like LA, they say L.A. is like the cleanest city in America since the pandemic, the air quality. <laughs> oh, wow. Isn't that nuts? Wow. Smog, smog City is the cleanest city in America. And, like, if you take it in those terms, you're like, wow, we are just like <clears throat> I follow this thing on Instagram. It's Carl Sagan site dedicated to him. 
And every year they are every once in a while, they'll post this picture and it's this picture in space, a ray of light. It's like a ray of light coming from the sun. Like this picture is taken from some telescope and there's this little moat in the beam. Like it looks like a star, like from far away. But they're saying that's Earth. This little piece of dust. You know what I mean? So, like, when you think about things like this happening, just a moment, you know, it's just a, I guess that can be helpful or not. I don't know. But I do think of it, I do think of it in those terms a lot. I don't know. Yeah, but it doesn't help. Like, you still have a life to live. Yeah, you do. I mean, there's the practical things. Yeah, those macro terms of, like, yeah, the Earth is you know, six billion years old. So all the you know, these things have happened millions of times and it's like, well that doesn't help me. I'm right. I'm here now. It's a strange strange twist of sort of consciousness and how we view time too, you know. Yeah. We we yeah. view it all linear and all that. I don't know if you want to get into like quantum physics at all, but <laughs> Yeah, that's one of my expertise. Um no no I agree with you. I, I do think having that perspective of hey in the grand scheme of things um where we're at in the timeline of eternity you know of time beginning to time end or whatever this is probably a blip to some degree but you know as we talked about last time too like when you when you feel like there's something more to this world than just the world itself when you feel like there's something beyond us from a a consciousness standpoint or from a, a life standpoint you do begin to ask some of those bigger questions of like, okay, well, well, even if it is a blip, like, is there purpose behind it? Is there something, you know, that takes stock? I mean, even even from the standpoint of going, okay, I need to take stock in regards to my relationships. Maybe that's something I took for granted before because now that's been taken away and some of these restrictions have been placed. Maybe I can take something out of this and go, man, I, I was not – I wasn't nurturing those as well as I should have, you know, because I'm really missing them now kind of a thing. So, yeah. And and I agree with you. You know, you talked about earlier, too, that we're all made for relationships. I completely and 100 percent believe that. And even from a a theological standpoint, I would say that um, that is absolutely true and biblical. Um, I mean, even when you look at the Christian view of God himself, God's in community, right? That's the whole aspect of the Trinity. And so I think being made in God's image that uh, people are made to be in relationship with each other. And so this has just thrown a lot of people for a loop because you're missing it. Even Because even introverts, you're right, still need people. If you want to grow and you want to kind of evolve and that sort of a thing, you absolutely need people to rub shoulders against. So, yeah. Going back to what we were talking about uh, with the divorce. Was there any point, because I was thinking about this when I was getting ready for this, was something that's come up a lot when I think about mom and dad. Was there any point where you were, when, you know, when the divorce happened and we started, like we would see our dad every other weekend when he lived near us. We'd see him every other weekend on the holidays. Um, Was there any point, during that period where you wanted them to get back together? Yeah. I mean, I think probably most kids have some sort of fantasy about their parents being reunited. So, so this is my point. I never felt that way. I don't know if it's like a, a hindsight sort of thing of like when I grew older and I looked at mom and I looked at dad and I thought, those people are so different. <laughs> There's no way together. Yeah, I don't know if I'm taking that and projecting it on my younger self, because but I don't remember ever thinking like I wanted them back together. Yeah, you know it's funny you say that because it wasn't something that I harbored. It wasn't something that you know thought about a lot, but I do remember thinking about it, and I do wonder for you in particular, at that age that we were when they did divorce, me being five and you being three. I mean, two years is a big difference, right? And so even from a developmental standpoint. Like 99% of your memory and existence has nothing to do with them being married, you know? And so the reality of what that may have looked like was much more far-fetched for you. Not that it was, you know, something that I lived with much longer, but I do think that I probably had a little bit more to hang on to. Um, And so maybe that was part of the reason why, you know, I thought about it every now and then. But the other thing too is like, 
I think it also, from my perspective, fairly quickly, both of them got into other relationships. And so, you know, I, I don't think, I don't think I was thinking about it much when that was going on by any stretch. Well, that's a good, a good segue. Um, the other relationship thing, because mom married this guy. Uh, you say, what you were? How old when that happened? I, I think I was seven or eight. So I was five or six. But she married this guy who worked at the paper mill, because yeah. mom was working at the paper mill at the time, single mom and all. And she married this guy, and it's safe to say he was pretty much a hillbilly, redneck type of guy. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, what is that how you think of him? That's how I think of him. Yeah, I, I, I guess I think of a hillbilly and a redneck as a little bit different, but <laughs> just because, you know, you, you, we were— this, Wait, you're saying there's a distinction between what a hillbilly is and what a redneck is? I do, yes. I do okay, so. well, let's talk about that for a minute. What, what's the distinction? <laughs> okay, so I, I think <laughs> you're putting me on the spot now. I think that, um, you know, when we lived in Cincinnati for what? Um, we lived there for almost 10 years. Cincinnati's really close to Appalachia, you know, so Kentucky's you got. Kentucky's right across the river, yeah. Kentucky's across the river, but then to the east is West Virginia. And 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 really, um, southeast Ohio feels more like West Virginia than anything else. And so there's a big sense of of, of Appalachia type living. And having seen Appalachia and been there, people up in the mountains, people who are disconnected from a lot of influence uh, socially and, and even from, you know, urban areas, there is a different feel there. And so I, I don't know if I can pinpoint like the exact differences between a hillbilly and redneck, but I think what we grew up was more redneck and that's a little bit more, I guess it's just a little bit more isolated and it's developed kind of its own bit of a culture. So I think our stepdad being born and raised in this small town that we've referenced before in Bastrop, Louisiana, it's definitely more of a redneck feel where, you know, you know, it's country, hunting music, country music, hunting, uh, apple pie, Americana, you know, all that sort of stuff. It's very much kind of where he was. I mean, you look at um, like Duck Dynasty, right? Yeah, that's redneck. He's a, he's a dip in skull. Right. I think he's most a- people in Appalachia would look at Duck Dynasty as a step up. Oh, wow. OK. Yeah, I mean they probably use phones, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but he was a redneck, let's just say that. And <laughs> came from the same, you know, same town as our our family, but really two different sort of styles of folk, I would think. Yeah, that's always been a mystery to me of how much those two always, families maybe knew of each other. I always felt, yeah, well, I always got the vibe from Papo, our grandfather. We call him Papo. Everybody's got a weird name for their grandparents. Um, Percy. I'll call him Percy. Percy. Um, he, I always got the vibe that he didn't really like William, who yeah. was our stepfather. Yeah, I, I got the sense that he knew of their family. And they and, were trapped. Right. And they yeah, I think they were, you know, the other side of the tracks type of people. Yeah. Because Papa had had had, you know, a stable job. You know, it wasn't an easy job, but it was stable. It provided more than enough for his family. I think that's more than our stepdad's family ever had. I also think there was a, a sort of class system within the paper mill because there was two things in the paper mill. There was the paper mill and then there was the pulp mill. Yeah. And the pulp mill was a dirtier job. You came home smelling because there's another aspect we didn't talk about with the paper mill was that it made the town smell like shit. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Sorry for that word, but it did. Like there was a, there was a a smell that you catch, you'd catch a waft of it and it was like, Oh, that's the paper mill. And it smelled like rotten eggs. Yeah. Yeah. So our grandfather worked in the paper mill. He would come home and not smell like that. William, our stepfather, would come home and he would smell like that. So there's an interesting dynamic working there mm-hmm. in the, as far as like a class system within that paper mill job. Mm-hmm. 
But anyway, speaking of the stepfather, our mom marries this guy, and we he there's a strike in a paper mill in international paper in Maine, in the state of Maine, and I don't know how this happened. Maybe he volunteered for it, but our stepfather gets transferred. And he's technically what they would call a scab, mm-hmm. right? So all these people who are striking at this paper mill in Maine, International Paper says, okay, well, we're just going to bring in some replacements, which our stepfather was one of them. Mm-hmm. And that was how we moved to Maine, which was a huge culture shock from you know the small town of Louisiana to the small town in Maine. Um, which is, you know, New England, Deep South. It's just yeah. was a weird, a weird time. Yeah, very much so. Like I, I, I agree with you. Like I think, um, I don't know how all that happened. I don't. I, that's you know the inner workings of how how IP progressed, and I, I don't know because like you said, it's not like he was high up or anything. But this was a significant step up for him. You know, it's kind of like being a company man. They're going to reward you for going to to being transferred. But it was two different worlds. I mean, it was being it was being ripped out of one world, really the only world that we ever knew uh, with friends, with family, um, school, uh, just every support system that we ever had and being thrown into not just a new place, but a completely different culture. And so it was it was incredibly shocking. So when I think about how I began to deal with separation and began to deal with adaptation, like I would I think it starts with the divorce, but I think it definitely comes to full bear um, with that move for me uh, because it, it it felt very much like. And so, like survival, like I think you and I my, my memory of you and I was that we got closer because we, I think we moved during the summer or right before the summer and during that summer before we started a new school. Like I remember you and I playing lots of baseball and, um, and you know, just doing a lot of stuff together. And we needed that. I think we, I think, you know, that was the only thing that was familiar. And so that was just a that, that was just a huge huge seminal moment in my life in a good way and in a bad way like it was huge because it was it was we're being ripped away from our family i mean no longer are we seeing our dad every other weekend right that was a huge yeah. deal but it was also a positive thing because it was the first time that i realized oh i can adapt and i can make friends and i can you know in some way become like this chameleon you know yeah, it was also you're exposed to a bigger world to in doing that. Yeah. And yeah. we I remember our time in Maine regardless of how it ended, which we'll get to of being I liked Maine a lot. I loved it. Yeah. And then we were there a couple of years and then that marriage ended for yeah. mom. And then we we did we went through a thing where we moved a couple times really quickly. And that, for me, when you were talking about disconnecting emotionally, that's when it really happened for me. Because I remember when the – because we should probably talk about our relationship to William, the second husband. Yeah. We were pretty close to him. We were. In the previous episode, we talked about how sports was a big part of our growing up and how our, our biological dad really didn't have much to do with that. This guy did, though. This guy, William, mm-hmm. was our baseball coach through two or three iterations of teams, Little League teams. Yeah. Yeah. And that was a huge part of our life growing up was Little League baseball. And he was a huge part of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he was he was the coach. He was the guy who did extra stuff with us in the yard, you know, whether it was hitting balls to us or playing, playing catch. I think he was, you know, he was a fairly patient guy as well. You know, I don't remember him um, exploding necessarily, like, you know, which is a stark difference between our dad and him um, because our dad obviously had a big temper 
But um, yeah, he, he had a huge influence. I mean, I remember in particular, like there, there came a moment where we had like it was almost like a, an offering to us of like if you want to call. I don't know if it was if he was presenting or our mom was presenting it, but I do remember like a conversation where it was like, if you want to call him dad, you can call him dad because we called our biological father like daddy or something like that. And so it was like it was like another name for another role, but still was that paternal fatherly role. And so that was a big deal because that also created a bit of shame where we. I felt like we kind of had to hide that from our biological dad and from our grandparents as well. So it was just, it was a weird deal, you know, for sure. But we came, we, the point is we, we became very, very close to him and it, it felt very normal to, to be affectionate with him. I remember wrestling with him a lot. Um, you know, again, sports was, was, was a big deal. That was a big connection point for us. And so, yeah, it felt, it just felt very healthy, honestly. I do. I remember that moment when we you do. called him dad that one time. I just remember one time when he came. It was like maybe he came home from work and we were like, and "Mom was like, you know, go ahead and do it, you know." And like we did, we called him. You remember that? I so don't that remember that's helpful I don't because it lasting long though. No, no, no. It did. It was a shift. It did. Yeah. Okay. But I, but I don't. I'm glad you said that because I, ha- I, I kind of thought it was mom encouraging us to do it but i couldn't remember exactly what that looked like but i do remember like being faced with a decision and then like it it became that like that was the 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 new way to address them yeah those are sort of the salad days of bashrup living in bashrup you know it's all tied it's all kind of tied up with him so but then we moved to maine and they get divorced yeah, that was a huge. I remember that was a big effect to me because we were so close to him. That was crushing to me when that happened, and uh, that breakup happened. Because and I remember it. It did affect me so much outwardly that mom sent me to a counselor at the school we were going to. I don't really? know. If, yeah, and I would go in there and I wouldn't talk to the guy. <laughs> I would just like he'd ask me how I'm doing, and I'd be like, "Good." <laughs> Is this in Maine? Yeah, this was at the Moranacook. Yeah, wow. The school we went to there, and um, I didn't. I didn't so talk about it. What What's your memory of that timeline then, of of how all that came about? With the breakup. Yeah. Like you want like the details of it or? Well, I'm just thinking like because that's that's surprising to me that that mom. That mom, that mom was aware that it was breaking down to that point. And it was affecting us to the point that she then sent you to a counselor. Because in my well, recollection, it seemed like it happened quick. Like I knew they were having problems, but I don't remember ever talking about the problems. And then the next thing we know, I remember like him having a conversation with me. Maybe you were there as well. Where it was like the goodbye, you know? See, I don't even remember that. I remember these dramatic moment of it when it happened mom coming out of that room crying and yelling do you remember that no yeah like they went in a room somewhere and i guess they finally sort of like this is what's happening and she comes out of the room crying like you cheated on me wow. yeah you don't remember that i remember that Vividly, I mean, like, maybe I blocked it out because I obviously know that there was an affair. Like, I do know that that was, you know, at the core of what happened, but I don't remember that at all. Yeah, that was, that moment crushed me. And then I remember the last time I saw him, I was coming. I don't know if I was coming home from school. Maybe not. You weren't there. But I was walking down that long, long dirt road. road he lived on, and he was coming up in the truck, and he stopped. And we spoke, and it was really awkward. And it was like the final goodbye. And that was the last time I saw him. So that's totally different than what I remember, because I remember playing basketball. You know, we had that goal that was at the end of the driveway. And I remember playing basketball and him coming out of the house, coming over to me, 
and giving me like this huge hug and saying something along the lines of, I love you, I'm going to miss you. And then that was it. Wow. I don't remember that. I didn't get that. Was I there? I thought you were, but maybe not. I mean, I would imagine you'd remember that. I bet you we weren't. We had two different things. Yours was like extremely sort of cathartic and mine was like a like <laughs> Rip it was, it's so, he felt so remote to me at that moment he's in this truck i'm outside of it we're on this dirt road in the middle of nowhere and he's saying like well good luck you wow. know wow so that i mean that plays a huge part then and just yes, the idea to, of separation yes and i had huge resentments towards him for most of my adult life like See, I that's funny. It's interesting because I, I would say that at that moment, um, as far as I can remember, I don't ever remember having another feeling for him. It was like it was like, you know, it kicked in where it was like, I'm done, you know, yeah. and, and that was probably protection. Um, but I think that was part of that whole disconnection thing that started of just like, OK, we got to move on. And uh, I don't remember processing it this way by any stretch, but I remember not feeling anything, even to the point where, like, you know, later on when mom at some point, maybe I was in university or even married at some point, didn't she reconnect with him? Like at least some sort of conversation wise or she saw him. I don't think I'm pretty sure I remember her saying that she saw him and. Uh and because he had moved back to Bastrop or something, and I remember yeah, seeing that he was just like a shell of himself and was kind of know, you know. I know he he did move back. Do you know you know how he died? No. So he <laughs> he had some sort of car, like a souped up sort of Corvette or some something like that, some car like that. And he was racing it. What? And, and had a heart attack and died like after the race or something. Like a like a street race or like a like a yeah I guess real I race. That's all. No, this is the only thing I get. This is what mom told me once. That's how he died. That's weird, dude. That's really weird. So anyway, like Ugh. speaking of disconnecting, I think that was at. at that moment was like the the start of a grand disconnect for me. Yeah. And moving from Maine to Colorado was a <laughs> we could do a whole podcast on that move. God. Well, it also relates to, you know, the podcast or podcasts that we have to do on our mom. Right. We should probably get into that, but another time. The whole, just the whole logistics of that and who was involved and all that. My point was like we in moving to Maine and then the Colorado, and we were in Colorado maybe six months. My, our mom's family lived out there. She had a brother, sister, and her parents lived there, out there in Denver at the time. And we moved out there, and we were there maybe six months and then moved back to Louisiana. Different town, but close to where we grew up. And there, all that time for me was like we never make friends because we were constantly on the move for a minute there. And that was hard for me. I think I went into a shell there for a while. That's hard for me, too. Yeah. I, I mean, that that was, I, I think, moving to Colorado, again, just it was such a disruption because not only are we now trying to adjust to not having a stepdad around – Moving to a complete – I mean, Colorado is a totally different culture as well. Being around that side of the family, which we'd never really been around by for any extent, uh, large extent of time. Um, and then ju- just when I felt like we were starting, at least for me, starting to maybe connect and make some relationships, boom, six months later, like we're gone. And then we got started all over again. So like that, that became – that became my third high school in two years. Yeah. So that's, that's just, that was just crazy. Yeah. That was a tough time. Mom's intentions were the best that she could do at the time. You know, it's sort it's sort of a through line in our lives of just how, just how families work. Some do, you know, like it was, it probably informed how you approached 
creating your own family. Oh, without question. Yeah. yeah. It, it's the classic, I've learned what not to do. <laughs> yeah. So that's how I'm going to then approach my own family for sure. Yeah. I think I'm thinking about something that mom told us too. I don't know if she ever told you this, but I'm sure she has about how her approach to parenting was a direct sort of anathema to how she was raised because she was raised by parents that was an old school way of doing things. They, they weren't very affectionate. They didn't tell them their kids that they loved them. So her approach was the the total opposite of that. And she Mm -hmm. was very affectionate and very vocal, maybe too much. So, so yeah, yeah, it is like you're raised a certain way and, your reactions to those are how you raise your own kids or how yeah, you, you pick and choose. You, you pick the things that you like and you pick the, and, and, and you adopt them and then you pick the things you don't like and you discard them, you know? And I think that's definitely been the case for me. You know, I, I would agree that for the most part, we had a very, a loving childhood that we went through a bunch of junk um, that I would not wish on any other kids um, and, you know, let's be let's be frank. It's not like we went through abuse. It's not like, you know, any of that sort of stuff. We never lived out on the streets. But um, emotionally, we went through a lot for sure. But, you know, our dad, he was very affectionate, you know, like I I, I definitely adapted what he did for you and me, where I always felt like he was quick to say I love you, quick to use emotional terms quick to be physical as something that was very important to me, particularly as I got older and saw how other people's parents related to them and thought that's definitely something that I want to be and carry on as well. Yeah. I think that maybe that's a generational thing too. Like, you know, maybe he grew up, he was kind of, he grew up a sick kid though. It's probably a generational thing, how you parent, you know, because things change for you. Like we were, we were spanked. Yeah. And most parents don't do that nowadays. Yeah. You know, they discipline in other ways. Yeah. Yeah, maybe so. Do you remember, like, moving back to Louisiana? Did that feel like a (laughs) – did it feel like a defeat in some ways? (laughs) Ah, man, that's that's a good question. I, I, I don't think I ever thought of it in those terms as defeat. Definitely felt like it was a rewind, you know, of going back to something that we'd been there before, even though, like you mentioned, it was a different city from what we'd grown up in. We were still in the same type of culture. We obviously had some contact with people that we had previously lived by or lived lived near, but it definitely felt like we were going back in time. Speaking um, of like where we went, we went to, we, we actually went, moved to the town that the Doug Dynasty people are from. That's right. What West, West Monroe. Monroe. Which you oh, know again was huge was big compared to Bastrop, right? Like it was it was a bigger place. Well I mean it was you know you mean West Monroe? Well just Monroe, yeah, but West Monroe is kind of you know it's across a river. They call it the Twin Cities, but it's not. I mean come on. <laughs> it's the truth. West Monroe's not really a city. Yeah it is. No. Come on. It it's had its own paper, like convention it's center. It's another paper mill town. Ish. Not not anywhere like uh Bastrop. Like it was not the center of that town. It was yeah. a, it was it was a part of it, but there's it was much more diverse in regards to like economic business. Well, I mean it had a hospital. Well, yeah, it had a lot more than that too though. But yeah, I, it's not a huge it was not a huge town. Okay, for sure. Well, the reason why I say like it was it a defeat because that's how I sort of felt the vibe of it. Was to me was like, oh, well, we're back here again. You know, that's how it always felt to me. Yeah, I, I think there was some of that, but you know, Josh, you know, when you talk about the whole separation thing, one of the things that I that I do remember picking up on is, you know, we mentioned before how our mom was raised in the Northeast came down to Louisiana when she got married, had us, that sort of stuff that, you know, she was, she was pulled away from what she knew, what she said, what she, you know, she grew up with. And then her whole base, her whole family moved 
from there. That's why we wound up going to Colorado because they wound up going out west. <clears throat> so for mom, like she, like it had become home for her. So I, I firmly like remember feeling relieved for her when we moved back because she was in a familiar place. She had friends. I mean, I, I still even feel that today that, you know, she still has people there that are really, really close to her and that she really, really counts on in a lot of sense. So I, I do remember for her, like, I don't think it felt like a defeat. I think it felt like a safety net. And there's some of that that was transferred to me of going, okay, th- this is a good thing for us, even though it's not the best, it's not crazy at all. Uh, it's not the, the, the best thing for us to, to do from my perspective of changing high schools again. There was a, for me, there was a little bit of a sigh of relief <clears throat> because we were in a familiar place for her. And I think she had hope where before she didn't have hope. Yeah. I, yeah. Cause she had gone back to like, she went to that school or whatever to. She went back to school. Yeah. And then she, again, she knew people and I think she just felt more comfortable. She knew how to navigate that place where, you know, that's in interesting. Colorado, that you, she didn't know anything. That's interesting that you were aware of that. I wasn't aware of her sort of, <laughs> I wasn't, I wouldn't say aware, but maybe sensitive to what she was going through at the time. Yeah. And as far as that goes, because I felt like when we moved from Maine to Colorado, it was a sudden thing. I remember we went to see our dad for the summer and then yeah. came back. We got off the plane. Mom picked us up and immediately she says we're moving. And we were both like, I remember this. We were both like, what? No, we like it here. We don't want to move. And she was like, no, it's happening now. We're not really? talking about this. You don't remember that? I don't remember that at I don't all. Always, I always remember these. It probably didn't even happen that way. I just remember it being like just dramatic things. <laughs> Maybe I just into that. No, I mean, it just, I think it just shows how messed up we are. And that like, I'm, we're probably taking something that, you know, on the surface was like, serious and real and i'm taking it and completely whitewashing it <laughs> you're taking it and you're making it darker <laughs> you know you don't remember getting off the plane I, 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 if, if you would have asked me hey do you remember how all that happened from a timeline perspective i i would not have come up with that I at, all, at all i think this might have been the same trip maybe it was one previous so visiting our dad that summer and we were leaving to go back and it was back in the day pre 9-11 where you know your dad could walk up to the gate with you or your mom That's right. and i remember just crying and him crying not in not wanting to leave him yeah do you remember that i do remember those moments of not wanting to leave for sure because yeah. those were great summers and there were summers that also included seeing our grandparents you know, which was always fun to do, too, because I, you know, since we've moved a couple times now, I think I mentioned to you, we've been going through a bunch of different pictures. And I've got some pictures that I want to send you of of that moment of, of us getting on a plane, being at the airport with dad and Papa there, like waiting, waiting at the gate with us. Yeah. No, I remember like not wanting to leave and crying. Was it that summer? I don't know. I think it might have been a different one. Okay. Like one of the earlier ones. Because I was wondering, like, would you have been sensitive to what you were flying back to? This is what I was thinking. This was just like this emotional mess. I didn't know what was going on, but I felt it all, you know. But, you know, so anyway, you don't remember. Do you remember being like not wanting to move from Maine, though? Like when mom told us we were moving, do you remember just being upset about that? Because I do. I, I don't remember being upset about it. I sure I, I'm sure I was because I really liked living in Maine. I felt like I had good friends. I felt like we, you know, had a good just kind of network of people at the school. We were starting to fit in, play sports, that sort of stuff. So I'm sure I was. I don't remember it. Like what I remember about that time more than anything was just the chaos of the move. Like I remember the packing. I remember the loading. Um, and then obviously the leaving and the travel part, that's what I remember, but everything leading up to it, I I don't, I don't have any memories of that. We should probably just do, we should do a podcast just on moving. You know what I mean? Just seriously. 
we could do one on that. Do but I feel like maybe this we should probably do a second part of this episode, like a yeah, separation part two, because there's another aspect of this separating that we should talk about when we got older. Yeah. When you go off to college, and yeah. then you know, and there, there were some years there where there was some true separation. Oh yeah. We weren't that close, you know. Yeah. So we could probably talk about that one in another episode, but I wanted to get back to the whole Colorado aspect. I remember when we moved to Maine, like sports were still a big part mm-hmm. of our life. And when we moved to Colorado, we did we didn't weren't there long enough to really play. Mm-hmm. But I remember mm-hmm. you try you trying out for the basketball team. Mm-hmm. Yes. And not making it. Mm-hmm. And I remember you telling me that one day, like the day. It was after school or something. You told me that, and I was crushed that you hadn't made it. And like mm-hmm. that was a huge another thing about like just sort of separating emotionally. Yeah. Was that was like that was another moment of just like this is a cruel world, man. My brother didn't make the basketball team. <laughs> well, you know, Josh, I, I, I uh, that was a big moment for me because you know not knowing what was going to be coming that we'd be moving. Um, I think part of the reason why I didn't make the team, I mean, I think part of it obvious is, is a legitimately may not have been good enough to make the team. But I think part of it too was, you know, we got there kind of, kind of right as school was starting from what I remember. And so it was kind of a quick adjustment. So there wasn't a lot of lead up. There wasn't a lot of ways to kind of get to know how things happened. And I can't remember being thrown into that tryout. And um, and literally was like a kid off the street. And so that was a big deal because six months later, having moved again, I tried out again when we moved to West Monroe and I didn't make the team. And that was really like like from from that when once we moved from Maine, I never really played organized high school sports again. Like everything was done by. Um, just in friendships and going to gyms and stuff like that. Because I think after having been rejected two times, I kind of got the sense of there's just no way. Like, I feel like I'm up against the man, you know, like I'm up against the system, Um, which so on the flip side of you feeling that way towards me in Colorado, um, the pride that I felt when you made the team and started having like tons of success um, was equally as emotional, you know, in a positive yeah. way for me. Yeah. So, yeah, so there was a sense of separation for me in my identity because, uh, you know, I kind of identified myself as, you know, an athletic guy who was decent at some stuff, never great at anything, but decent at, a, at some things. And, you know, from the age of four, you know, I'd been playing sports. And now uh, in in the matter of, you know, a few months, it felt like all that was kind of taken away. Yeah, it was going back to this thing, though, that you said earlier and about all of this thing that's happening now is that we are adaptable. Yeah. Like all that stuff that happened to us, it did make, you know, the whole saying of it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger. <laughs> it's true. We do adapt yeah. to these things and it makes us stronger, you yeah. know, and it makes us wiser. And I think that's the point that we should mm-hmm. take out of all of this. Mm-hmm. And what's happening now and what whatever we just related yeah. to each other is that we are resilient and adaptable and we'll get through this yeah. just like we got and, through other things. And I, th- I think you're right. I think um, in many ways it, it is reflective of kind of the human spirit, you know, the nature of humanity and what we're what we're able to to endure. And And I would say from a personal level, when I look back on everything – I, I don't I, I don't regret that those things happened. Like I know that I am the person that I'm that I am because of those things. And I can see how those have directly influenced what I hope are positive attributes that I now have. But I will say and this could be something that we pick up in part two. I will say, like, I've also been able through some counseling to recognize some of the downsides of being resilient because I think I can come across at times expecting other people to be more resilient than they really are. Yeah, and there's also the as- aspect of what we talked about of like emotionally shutting off. 100%. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. There's a fine line. 
There is. You know, there's a, you're protecting yourself, but you're also hurting yourself too. By you and, and those and those around you. You know, I think that's the thing that I've learned is is that you know my approach to making it through a hard time is very different than my wife's approach and my children's approach as well. And I can sometimes thrust that on them and go, well, come on, you know, this is the way we do it. Get through it, persevere, you know, everything, everything will turn out okay. And while I do 100% believe it, and I actually think they believe that too, their road to get there is very different than my road. And that's that, that has been a hard lesson to learn. Yeah, everybody has their own process. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so I guess we can end it here and promise to do a part two of this because we can pick up when we get back to Louisiana and then go from there on the theme of separation. But which will be, you know, you I'll be what, 17 and you'll be 15. 15, Yeah, 15. Well, 15 would have been when I went when I went off to Dallas. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, like our separation into adulthood. Yeah. Anyway, thanks for listening. And do you have anything you want to say? No, it's, it's um, you know, again, I think doing this podcast is something that's really just more catharsis for me and you. And if other people enjoy it, I think it's great. But, yeah, we'll just continue to do this because I think it helps us learn a lot about not only ourselves but each other. And maybe that hopefully will help other people kind of do some self-examination as well. So, yeah, hopefully – Hopefully people get something out of this uh, through our experiences. Right. So, yeah. Okay. Well, we'll see you next time. All right.